It's Tuesday the 17th of December and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, crisis on the left as Britain's opposition parties struggle to determine a way forward. Brexit was one issue, but it wasn't the only issue. It was an issue of leadership and of policies and a manifesto as well. We'll hear from the author and journalist Terry Stiasny. Plus, why Philadelphia is sowing the seeds of urban progress with a new agriculture mayor. Road fees take a toll on drivers in Austria. And our own jolly jukebox, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, looks at why festive chart toppers strike such a chord at Christmas time in the UK. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. It's difficult to overstate the scale of the challenge lying ahead for Britain's Labour Party. Newspaper editorials at the weekend and into Monday were bursting with theories of what precisely it was that went so catastrophically wrong. Last week's election was a landslide win for the Conservative Party and Labour's worst result in nearly a century. Terry Stiasny is an author and political commentator. This result is deeply disappointing for everyone who so desperately needed real change in our country. It was extremely bad. Uh, This was Labour's worst election result since 1935. And when you think in those days the Labour Party was a fairly new thing, uh, that just gives you a sense of how devastating this was. Labour ended up with 203 MPs. Uh, They lost dozens of seats. They lost seats which in many cases... Uh, had been Labour for you know for 80 years, for 100 years, and they lost seats which had always been considered uh, as totally loyal to the Labour Party. So the Conservatives had a strategy where they were going to destroy what they called the Red Wall, which was a kind of a string of seats across the north of England from from the northwest to the northeast. People didn't think that might succeed, but it did. It succeeded massively, particularly in towns, particularly uh, in places which had voted Leave during the referendum. And so we saw a scenario where places like Sedgefield, for instance, in the northeast of England, which had been the seat held by Tony Blair, the Labour Prime Minister who won three elections, uh, fell to the Conservatives. So it is a massive task for whoever wants to lead Labour next to try to uh, rebuild that. Ultimately, the divisions in our country over Brexit were too great for us to overcome in this election. But as the 2017 election showed, our programme is popular. Brexit was one issue, but it wasn't the only issue. It was an issue of leadership and of policies and a manifesto as well. Any political party that looks at its heartlands where it takes the vote for granted and says those seats we've won for 100 years can fall overnight without us really seeing that coming. You know, some people said it was. And I don't think many people estimated a defeat on this scale. I mean, yes, other, you know, the French socialists are trying to rebuild themselves at the moment. Uh, Germany has a new leadership, but at least, you know, SPD are in coalition. They are in government. So even if they may not like that very much, and they, they, they also look back at their heritage of being in power and are very critical of it, at least they actually have some power to share. So that when elections come, we'll be bigger and stronger. We will win. The initial reaction uh, within the Labour shadow cabinet, the people who'd supported the leader, Jeremy Corbyn, was very much to say, 
this is the fault of Brexit and, you know, to some extent, the fault of the voters and it's not the fault of the leadership. And it wasn't till uh, the Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell, said that he said he personally owned the defeat and he took responsibility for it, uh, that that tone has slightly started to change. But I think many people within Labour are angry that they haven't had an apology from Jeremy Corbyn. Former MPs, for instance, Labour Party staff, people who've lost their seats, feel that the leadership is showing no contrition at all and no recognition of the part that they played in this defeat. And on the contrary, they're trying to move ahead quickly to get a new leadership in place uh, without having a looking fundamentally at, at what went wrong. The seeds for improving urban greenery in Philadelphia were sown earlier this year when city planner Ashley Richards was named the city's first ever urban agriculture director. But nothing had quite sprouted, at least until now. Monocle's Nick Manise is here to explain perhaps one too many metaphors. Uh, Nick, why should a city need a so-called agriculture mayor? Let's keep going with the metaphors. I'm going to say <laughs> that not? nothing had taken root until uh, last <laughs> week. Uh, no, but R- Richards has come into this this newly created position. I, th- I think it's twofold. It, it's that, I mean, having urban agriculture, having community gardens, it's, it's really, really good for food security. But it's also incredibly good, I guess, for uh, the community as a whole in terms of like social interactions, in terms of mental health and access to greenery. And and what Philadelphia is doing, or what Riches has got moving on, is creating an urban agriculture plan. And that's that's they've taken the first baby steps in putting that together uh, last week. And that's going to, I guess, help put together a strategy for the city in, in terms of how they protect and expand uh, farms and community gardens in the city. I was recently visiting London's Garden Museum and I was quite struck by how British gardens, when you look at some of the old pictures they've got on display there, it certainly seems as if they used to serve quite a different purpose to what we might imagine a city garden to be for now. They weren't just pretty spaces to sit in. They were often places for growing food. They were practical spaces. You'd have vegetables and herbs out there and so on. Is part of this push, do you think, in Philadelphia... Also a handy reminder that we might all have a role to play in this kind of thing as well. Yeah, I think certainly we all do. And and, and gardens and, and I guess urban farms offer an opportunity for people to come together over essential projects. Like, there is nothing better. And again, this is coming from a person that's only grown vegetables in their backyard, but it's it's still coming together with people to produce, uh, like, for instance, a, a crop of tomatoes. And there's nothing more satisfying than that. So if you can get neighbours and communities coming together to work together on these sorts of projects, I think that's really beneficial for cities. Nick Moniz, we'll let you get back to your tomato patch. Thank you. Fees for using roads across Austria have been taking a toll on drivers. Now the government is applying the brakes on the idea. Anyone travelling to Austria or Switzerland over the winter skiing season will be familiar with the country's national highway toll and the rather frustrating need to buy a vignette to stick on your front windshield before continuing on your journey. Failure to pay the toll can result in a spot fine of 240 euros. But the highway toll has had some unintended consequences for the towns along the border. The more knowledgeable tourists have crowded their roadways in a bid to avoid the costly highways. After years of protests, Austria's transport authorities have finally given in, relaxing the tolls on a series of highways that run along the country's northern border. A rare win-win for foreign skiers and local residents. It serves as a reminder that, as we think about new ways to pay for transport infrastructure, we shouldn't ignore the impact on local communities.
And finally today, our culture correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, draws up his list of naughty and nice pop favourites that'll be saving him from tears this year. What do the Pet Shop Boys, Bob the Builder and Rage Against the Machine have in common? They all had a Christmas number one song in the UK. For me, it's one of the most fascinating things about the country, the importance attached by press and public to who will reach the peak of the charts during that special festive week. To be sure, there have been some rather anodyne entries from talent TV shows claiming the top spot in the past decade, usually with sugar-free remakes of classic songs. But I get the impression that wacky novelty singles are coming back in vogue. You can't do this. What do you mean I can't do this? You've written a song about a sausage roll. Babe, I'm doing this for you. I'm, this is your Christmas present. I'm trying to win you Christmas number one. I need you on the vocals because like, my voice is too... Just look at last year's Christmas number one. Though by no means my all-time favourite, Let Babies We Build This City on Sausage Rolls was certainly a tasty choice. We built this city. We built this city on sausage rolls. Built this city. Come on, baby. And talking about Let Baby, he's one of the main contenders again this year with his follow-up smash, I Love Sausage Rolls. The last act with consecutive Christmas number ones were the delightful Spice Girls. Other contenders this year include rapper Stormzy with his latest single featuring Ed Sheeran and Burna Boy. Wens' everlasting Last Christmas is in with a chance too. Can you believe that it was never a number one hit in the UK charts? Instead, it has the odd distinction of being the best-selling number two song of all time. Long live the holiday spirit in the charts. What's my favorite Christmas number of all time, you ask? Well, that would have to be the 1978 classic Mary's Boy Child, Oh My Lord, by Euro-Caribbean group Bon A.M. Since I like a bit of cheesy music, isn't that what the holidays are all about? From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Monocle's very merry Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. That's all in today's program. You can read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Wednesday.